Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very sad. When I left, I had all I wanted, but now the Lord has brought me home with nothing. Why should you call me Naomi when the Lord has spoken against me and the Almighty has given me so much trouble? Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death and my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my adversaries will rejoice when I'm shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. morning. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. Glad you could be with us. Welcome as well to those joining us online and down in our F3 service. Uh, 35 years ago today, the President of the United States, Ronald Reagan, arrived in West Berlin. The day prior, June 11th, 1987, was actually the single largest police deployment in Berlin history post-World War II. So you can imagine the, the chaos, the confusion, as the, the political and personal tension hit a critical mass. But it was on this day, June 12th, with the eyes and ears of the whole world on him that our president began his speech with this. Here's what he said. There is one sign the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and all of Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. You see, tearing down that wall, it, it meant something, still does, because it advanced the cause of freedom and peace. An enslaved and peaceless society in need of rescue. Now, does that only describe 20th century Berlin <laughs> or also our 21st century world? An enslaved and peaceless society. Perhaps the walls that exist between people now are not made of iron, but ideas. Why do we so easily, for example, lose the ability to disagree with love? Have we lost the ability to fight well over an issue? Have we lost the ability to fear not when trials come our way? What if 
one of the first steps to losing peace and experiencing enslavement is the fracturing of community. My sophomore year of college, my university campus created a program called Safe Spaces where you could select rooms to socialize in based on your political, social, and religious beliefs to ensure that you would not rub shoulders with anybody who could possibly offend you. They valued safe spaces instead of face-to-faces. Why? Why is it that in times of trial and friction, the remedy chosen is isolation, separation? It's because we live in a peaceless and enslaved society where the remedy offered is rarely God and everyone is right in their own eyes. But if God is a a remedy then, we're, we're here in church, if God is a remedy, if he's truly an option, in a world that is continually peaceless and enslaved? How do we engage with him when he seems silent? Why would we want to engage with a seemingly silent God? And what would it even look like? We are going to see this morning that by God's grace and mercy, even the falls and frustrations of this world are biblical. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm chapter 13. Chuck Swindoll once said that life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond to it. You see, we can easily get wrapped up in circumstance. We can respond in untruthful ways. We can live as if, yeah, I guess there's merit to, to what God has to say, certainly on a good day, but I'm a little bit swamped at the moment. And until I figure it out, maybe it's worth staying home a few Sundays. Maybe it's worth talking to God a little less, at least until I can figure it out. A few weeks ago, Mark preached on the power of a story in the the life of a local church. We just heard an incredible story, an awesome testimony. You see, if we aren't careful, we can establish a culture in the church where the only stories worth sharing are success stories. Here is the latest victory, as I have fully understood it. Here is the deliverance that I've experienced. Here is all the good that has come from the trial. What is inevitable, though, is the good, the bad, and the ugly. We talked last week about bitterness out of Ruth chapter 1. We, we stopped reading. We ended on a point of despair. Aren't we just here for the good? Well, of course we're here for the good. And this morning you're going to hear about him, I promise. But I'm, I'm looking around the room right now and I can tell some of you brought the bad and the ugly in with you. What do we do with the brokenness? David exemplifies what we can do with our peaceless struggles and enslaved minds. Let's read together. Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long am I to feel anxious 
in my soul with grief in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your faithfulness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has looked after me. See, there's a lot we can glean from this, this collection of books, the whole Bible, in fact, as far as ways in which we can authentically approach our God and King. And David, whom we know biblically to be an earthly king, with a resume, by the way, as peaceless and as enslaved as ours, he still fosters authentic fellowship with God. Here's how. Your sermon notes reflect this. But first, he embraces the brutal reality. Look at verses 1 and 2. The brutal reality. A series of questions. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long am I to feel anxious in my soul with grief in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? In that brutal reality, there is raw communication in the context of a real relationship. Years ago, there was this uh, TV series on Animal Planet called Untamed and Uncut, okay? They would show uh, raw footage of, of just absolutely enraged animals going head-to-head against zookeepers and caretakers. Oh, it was uh, fascinating to watch. Uh, my dad, Barry, and I would sit there. We'd be chowing down on our pizza rolls just watching as these zookeepers and caretakers would endure the advancements and frustrations of these animals with which they've developed relationships. Now, it's a curious thing, watching an African lion just sprint towards some zookeeper named Gary, and you're thinking, no way Gary's going to make it. Yet this zookeeper is just like, here we go again, Uh, he's upset, Go ahead and, I don't know, grab the dart gun for me as he addresses somebody off camera. And you're thinking, Gary, run, man! What are you doing? The lion thinks you've been holding out on him, which is why he's upset. And now he's trying to hold you in his teeth. David, at the beginning of Psalm 13, he's untamed, he's uncut. But it's no zookeeper he's engaging. It's his father in heaven. You see, David displays that we don't just have a God worth talking to when our smiles are big and our plates are full. He can handle us when we are in our worst. And far better to take every thought captive to Christ before we take those thoughts captive to our spouse, to our children or to our friends in the heat of the moment. 
I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. Here's what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not even of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are, verse 5, destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And what? We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Paul reminds the church in Corinth, a body of believers, by the way, prone to division, disunity. We do not war like this world. The way we fight has got to be different. And if you're here this morning as a believer in Jesus Christ, it's in your DNA, your new nature, to fight differently. So far here at Fellowship, over the last few weeks, we've been discussing the book of Ruth. And we've, we've chosen to focus on the Psalms as a companion piece to Naomi's circumstance. This is a, a woman who has rejected the name the Lord has given her because she also is peaceless, seemingly enslaved to the death and tragedy around her. And here we have David who echoes a similar struggle in an eternal weight of loneliness and betrayal. What do we do when we're hanging on by a thread? What does it look like for a man in hiding from enemies on the prowl, which is an accurate description of David's life at the time of Psalm 13's formation? What does it look like for a, a single mother to experience a despair so deep it has everything but consumed her? What does it look like for a, a parent or grandparent to realize that it's when their children or grandchildren walk away from the Lord that it cuts deeper than anything that has happened to them personally? What does it look like for the young couple who has miscarried three times in their first year of marriage. How long, Lord? How long? One of the first lies we are fed when trials come our way is that the suffering we are experiencing is unbiblical. That, that God hasn't accounted for it. And if the enemy can convince us that Scripture cannot explain what we're going through, we will more easily believe that He can. But Psalm 13 disintegrates that possibility so long as we cling to it, we model it. So Psalm 13, bookmark it if you have to. Why? Because we have a chapter short enough to fit on a fridge magnet, but big enough to change the way we grieve forever for the glory of God. These seasons are biblical. These brutal realities. We are not alone. And 
we've been granted the opportunity to address God about them. As we read the chapter, though, clearly the emotional roller coaster is, is far from over. So the psalmist continues by offering a bold request, the bold request in verses 3 and 4. He writes, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death, and my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. The bold request. When we are more familiar, at times, when we are more familiar with our enslavement or our lack of peace than we are familiar with the Prince of Peace and the Breaker of Chains, we are then wonderfully prepared to return to Him. God, here is what I'm going through, and here is what I'm asking of you. That is an important dynamic. Raw communication exists in the context of a real relationship. It's important. Why? Because this world guarantees you a devotional life with the devil. The peaceless and enslaved society that will manifest itself personally in our lives. The stage has been set. The context of our, our sermon series is Ruth, the impact of societal problems where everyone is right in their own eyes on personal relationships. You see, it's a society peaceless and enslaved by things it considers to be freedom and it considers to be righteousness. So we've discussed Ruth in the context of judges in similar fashion. Take your Bibles and look at the Two verses our passage is placed between the immediate context of the Psalms. Here's what Psalm 12, verse 8 says. The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. The stage is set. Yet, somehow we get to Psalm 14, verse 1, that says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. <laughs> I mean, wow. What, what does it take to get to that point? From the wicked strutting to the declarative acknowledgement of God. Yeah, there's a lot going on, but I'd be silly to declare he's gone. <laughs> These psalms, they express the grief David experienced prior to his coronation. And many of the themes expressed in one psalm are, are picked up and developed in others. For instance, at the beginning of Psalm 12, in verses 3 and 4, David petitions for the defeat of those who shout the phrase, we will prevail. In our passage for today, David asks for God to enlighten his eyes, lest his enemies say what? I have prevailed. Similarly, Psalm 13's repetitive cry, how long, responds to God's promise to act in Psalm 12. 
where he says, I will arise. And even earlier, this is so cool, in passages Psalm 3, 7, 9, and 10, that phrase is repeated, arise, O Lord. Raw communication in the context of a real relationship despite a peaceless and enslaved life. Which means the dynamic is what? Arise, O Lord. I will arise. When? Raw communication. Arise, O Lord. I will arise. How long? How long, O Lord? Is that where we stop? At how long? By reading these shared words in the Psalms, we learn how the entire book of Psalms, actually, it tells a, a unified story. So we read Psalm 13 this morning as a lamentation that trusts in God's promises, yet grieves that his promise has not yet been fulfilled. What does that mean for us? That means what we already know about God becomes the foundation from which we wrestle with circumstance. It was the same for David. Hebrews 4, uh, verse 16, read a little bit sweeter to me a few weeks ago as I was preparing this. Hebrews 4, 16 says this, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews chapter 4, the context there being a rest for the people of God. What better time to draw near to the throne in confidence than when we've been cast aside by confusion and calamity? There is merit to a great awakening in our personal walk when trials come our way. In the 1700s, there, there was something called the, the Great Awakening. It was this, this religious revival. It was a, a renewed reliance on God. You see, the desire for God, and I would argue the desire for thinking biblically at all, uh, grew stale in the English colonies. Okay? So it was only a matter of time before revitalization occurred, the Great Awakening. Many scholars now believe we are on the brink of, of another religious movement. History says a religious social movement occurs every 60 to 80 years, but his story says that God's always moving. So what do we do as the church? We certainly don't wait to call upon the name of the Lord when it's more mainstream. Have we found ourselves waiting to worship or can we worship while we wait looking at verses 5 and 6 we see lastly the beautiful response psalm 13 5 and 6 the beautiful response but i have trusted in your faithfulness my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has looked after me, because he has dealt bountifully with me. 
Are we only praising God for, for what he's done or, or also for who he is and also for what he's going to do? In six verses, David goes from a heart of grief to a heart of gratitude. Doubt is going to bring defeat, but it's the promise that's going to bring praise. What, what did David know? What did he know about God? David reveals to us three promises from God in these two verses. God has promised his faithfulness. God has promised his rescue. And God has promised his caretaking. These three things, faithfulness, rescue or salvation, and caretaking, these are our biblical tenets found throughout these stories. Okay, David, Naomi, people, you and me, people, have experienced the manifestation of God's promises. It says, at the pivotal point, I have trusted. Everything David clings to in order to experience joy and rejoicing are attributes of God. You see, the beautiful response is in David. There is no reliance on his circumstance. In verses 5 and 6, there is no reliance on his environment. In verses 5 and 6, there's certainly not reliance on the political landscape of the time, which is actually the formation of the trouble in which he is experiencing. Psalm 13, 5 and 6. Christians were made to be victorious, but here's why. Because Christians were made to be victoriously reliant on him. I want to read to you an excerpt from Clayton King's book, Stronger. Here's what he writes in his book, Stronger. He says, Hard times don't make me happy, but by God's grace, they can make me holy. When there's no death, there can be no resurrection. When there's no cross, there can be no empty tomb. Peace isn't the absence of crisis. It's the presence of Christ in my crisis. Just because I feel invisible, it doesn't mean I'm not valuable. God works in our weakness because that's all we can give him to work with. Before every triumph, there is trial before every testimony, there's a test. He writes, I can't stop when I feel stuck. I have to keep moving forward in faith that Jesus is stronger. He says, I want to give up. I want to give up. But if I'm not dead, then God's not done. If I'm still breathing then I can keep going. I don't have to feed every feeling. Just because I'm lonely, it doesn't mean that God has left me. I can grow bitter 
or I can become better. If my pain serves the purpose of seeing Jesus more clearly, if it serves the purpose of preaching the gospel more boldly, then I want to embrace it, not escape it. I keep asking Jesus to give me something, but he is instead trying to show me something. Maybe the real gift is the revelation of his presence in my pain. I should stop seeking happiness in my weakness and start seeking holiness. Pain has a way of purifying my motives and clarifying my calling. He says, God is not punishing me for failure. He is pruning me for fruitfulness. The things that break me are the very things that bring me closer to my God, my King. In the 1930s, this country experienced uh, the Great Depression. 200 years after the Great Awakening, okay? The roller coaster of life continues. And what I think we are experiencing right now is the great emotion. Volatile dialogue, ferocious forecasts, negativity, narcissism, the inability to disagree. How long, Lord? We don't know how long, but you and I, we fight differently. Let's go. Let's go from how long, Lord, to how great is our God. How? How do we navigate a peaceless and enslaved society? How do we handle and deal with a peaceless and enslaved heart? The road to recovery from life's despair is paved by the embracing of an everlasting God. What is the first thing we do when we find ourselves on a roller coaster we aren't quite sure of? We hold on tight, this time to a God who saves, a God who is faithful. And church, I'm telling you, he is faithful. The God we yearn for, he has come. He has served. He sent his son, Jesus. He became sin, who by the way, knew no sin beforehand, that we might become his righteousness. And guess what? That lack of peace you experience, that enslavement, that is what makes you compatible with Christ's work on the cross. Not incompatible. It's exactly what he came for. As we ask God to come and to serve and to deliver us from, from hellish things, these tastes of death, we can remember. We need remember 
that he has come. He has served. Have you trusted? Psalm 13, 5. Have you trusted that you were born into a broken world? Have you trusted that you have been getting more and more acquainted with the need for rescue? And that through God's divine plan and passion for you, that he sent his son. He died on that cross. He conquered death. I have trusted. You see, we're not just a, a, a bunch of Christians huddling up and, and, and guessing what would Jesus do, which is a good question to ask. But we are also a body of believers reveling in what has Jesus done. By grace, through faith in Christ alone. And that's the beautiful irony of this magnificent story, isn't it? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, I will never be alone again. Because of Him, because of Jesus. It doesn't mean I'll never feel alone again, Ruth chapter 1. It doesn't mean I'll never feel forgotten again, Psalm chapter 13. But it does mean I never will be. Belief becomes reality. Because the object of our faith is the God who vacated the tomb to give you victory. Amen? He didn't just conquer death. He offers life. Ten Psalms later, David uses the phrase, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. To prove that the closest a believer in Jesus Christ will ever get to death is its shadow. There is no valley of death for the believer in Jesus Christ. Only, only ever its shadow. And by the way, it's that shadow that is made known by the light. In this Jesus, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. Meaning, the God has been made more personal than our struggles ever could be. We then respond. We respond to the great emotion. We fight differently. We respond with the Great Commission. We live in response to this good news as we cling to faith and as we cling to truth. Many may remember 35 years ago today the way our president began his speech in West Berlin. But here is how that speech ended. Our president said this, as I looked out a moment ago, I noticed words crudely spray painted upon the wall perhaps by, by a young Berliner, 
They said, this wall will fall. Belief becomes reality. And as our president pivoted to the world watching, he said, yes, across Europe, this wall will fall because it cannot withstand faith and it will never withstand truth. And from what we can know about God says that we will sing to the Lord because He has looked after us. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, what a, a blessing and privilege it is to open your word in good company. God, thank you for creating in each and every one of us something that craves you, something that was designed for you. And God, as we, as we dwell on, on Psalm 13 this morning, as we understand what Ruth chapter 1 is for and what all 66 of these books are for, I pray that you and your son would mean more to us now than you did a little over an hour ago. God, I pray we would embrace each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that we would create a culture where it is harder for us not to fight differently because of you. God, what your son did on the cross for us is an incredible free gift. And if there's anybody in this room right now, I pray that they would trust that they would believe in you, that they would understand that it's not about works, it's not about any action on their part, but the utmost action on yours. God, as we leave here this morning in song and rejoicing, I pray we would take that with us and we would understand the powerful implications of a real relationship with Jesus. And it's in that Jesus' holy, powerful name I pray. Amen.